Sebastian Marshall. Welcome to the Medigame. Daniel, thank you so much for having me, and, and shout out to uh, to Peter, who we uh, we connected through a wonderful guy. As I was getting to know your your materials when you invited me on the show, I said, I think we're gonna have a great time. I think this is gonna be great. So thank you for having me here. Yeah, I'm super excited for this conversation. And uh, a quote actually just popped into my mind, which I think might be a good gateway for the listeners to contend with some of the stuff we might discuss. And I don't know who said this, but it's something like, if you want a life that only 5% of people have, you must be willing to do the things that only 5% of people do. I wonder, what do you think of that quote? Well, I mean, it's such an obviously true statement. Um, there's a wonderful book with a terrible title um, called The End of Overeating. And like mm. a, a, um, a, a publisher renamed it to try to sell more copies because it was written by, I don't know, like the head of the FDA under the Clinton administration or something. And it goes through exactly how they do industrial food processing. There's like a chapter at the end about how to eat less by being mindful. And it's like, not great, there's better stuff. But when they talk about how the food labs, for instance, precisely design the mouthfeel, the taste, the texture, mm. and sugar and salt and fat. And it's like the best book on industrial food processing I've ever read. And you're like, that's what you're up against. That's what you need to, like, like some of the smartest people in the world, material scientists, chemists, chefs, and, and they have oodles of cash to throw at the best people in the world to design stuff that they want you to get eating every day and multiple times a day. And the equivalent happens in entertainment and the equivalent happens in mass media and information. And, you know, before computers, obviously this has been ramping up for a long time, but now computers can just relentlessly mathematically optimize everything to make it as mm -hmm. addictive, as high usage, as purchase this as possible. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a darn shame. And this is also, no matter how strong your willpower, I know you've written some stuff about, hey, willpower alone is, is not the answer. And it's not exactly how you put it, but it's, you know, paraphrasing mm -hmm. a theme that you had. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. There's a design component. There's an education component. There's a really thinking about things component. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier um, before we got started about some people aren't into the hardcore stuff that, that I've done. I've done some extensive time track every five minute block, like literally every single minute for a couple of years in a row down to the five minute block, right? Type stuff. Um, and I think most people won't, do, won't want to do that. And of course, and I don't advocate that most people do that. I'm kind of doing R&D and I get a kick out of it. You know, everybody's got their, their weird thing yeah. that they're into. Like I actually like doing it. Like it's weird, right? But I like it. Um, you know, in a setting that you're more in accord with, you know, that's more natural, you can rely on your intuition. You know what I mean? If your if if your food that you wouldn't expect to have sugar or or, or whatever crazy stuff is has it added there, you, you can't purely just rely on intuition in that world because you're up against some of the smartest people in the world doing um, things to make things as addictive and as desirous to consume as possible. And so, I mean, yeah, I just agree with that sentence completely. It's it's what we're up against, and it's a it's a big 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 challenge. Yeah, there's a there's a pretty intense quote. I, I think I saw this on Twitter where somebody said. In the modern world, it's actually really hard to go to a grocery store and not buy highly palatable poison. And if that's the environment that you're living in, then naturally you're going to have to marshal some defenses or some some uh, approaches to to actually be healthier. And I think um, you alluded to how this is true across all these different domains. You know, it's in entertainment and the digital environment. Um, but kind of jumping in. To the people who are not initiated with you, uh, I think what I really like about your work is that you follow the logic of this stuff a little bit longer than most people do. Like you'll think about this 
And I think you're actually quite good at the theoretical side of things when it comes to how to live in like a very concrete way. And you'll follow the logic until it leads you to uncomfortable territory. And that you, people usually stop before they, they get there, right? They'll be like, oh, I'll give an example. So most people don't really know where their time goes. You know, and if you, if you pulled somebody at random off the street and you asked like, you know, what did you do this week? Where did you spend most of your time? They don't have the ability to actually recount that because it's actually quite hard. The quality of your life is actually a function of how you spend your time. You know, your output, your relationships, et cetera. Time is actually, everyone knows this. Time's the most important resource, right? Most people stop there. And then you'll go a step further and you'll be like, well, maybe I should track my time. I should figure out where it's going. Is it going to the right places and what can I do about it? And then, you know, you come up with these really interesting, intricate practices that definitely aren't for everybody. And you said you get a kick out of it. But I love that flow of the logic. And I think even if somebody's not the type of person who's going to create a spreadsheet where they track everything, um, there's still an opportunity for growth just by encountering how you think about these things. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Um, and, and, and thank you for, for checking out the work. I'm glad, I'm glad some people like it. And once again, you know, some people, they, they find their little thing that they like and they tell everybody, you got to get on my thing. You got to get on my thing. And I'm, I'm not like that. There's, mm -hmm. there's ways to get, if you want to do time tracking, there's some low hanging fruit to get time tracking out of. And I actually started with low hanging fruit. I said one week, um, many, many years ago, I said to myself, you know, Peter Drucker originally wrote in the effective executive, you got to know where your time goes as an executive. Most people say, I think it's a third here, a third here, a third here. And then they went and they actually audited that CEO or executive schedule. They found it was 10% in those three categories, you know, with my senior staff on product development and talking to senior customers or something, right? I found it's like 10% that 90% just like garbage and wasted and run around and admin and like, like, like people. So, you know, you take this to its conclusion. It's like, well, if that number goes a lot, up a lot higher, I'm going to get a lot more of what I like. And that applies to anything, whether that's a leisure activity or whatever. The first week I did time tracking, I only tracked one thing. That's why I recommend everybody start. You pick what your most important work is. You get to mm -hmm. choose for yourself um, or your most important anything. That could be time with, with your kids. If you're a parent, that could be time playing sports or anything, right? That could be time spent reading. I remember the first week I did this. I don't remember what work it was. This was ages ago. But I remember whatever I picked was the most important thing that week. In the whole week, I felt busy the whole week. And when I added it up at the end of the week, because I wrote down every time I started my most important work, every time I stopped, I put in only four and a half hours. Mm -hmm. I put in only four and a half hours, you know, um, you know, across, uh, you know, across the, the entire week, right? And there's 168 hours in a week, if I'm remembering correctly, I haven't done that math in a while. There's 168 hours in a week, and I put four and a half of them into what I said was the most important thing. And I was like awake. I wasn't like in bed. I wasn't comatose. And I'm like, well, no wonder. I'm not getting exactly what I want at the highest standard of what I want. I'm getting kind of dragged around by life's responsibilities or by distractions or whatever. I'm not, I'm not allocated. The thing that I said to myself that no one coerced me, nobody told mm -hmm. me, nobody bullied me, nobody pressured me. The thing that I said, this is where I want my time to go. What I think is meaningful, important, makes me happy, builds my life up, does what I want it to do. I put in four and a half out of 168. I'm like, man, I ain't going to cut it. So I started trying to get that number up. And I mean, lo and behold, when you put time into the thing that you want to be putting it into, that's not everything. You need to like get some good associates and friends and colleagues, people you can learn from and share with. You need to manage your resources, you need to build your skills. That's not the whole game, right? But it's a big part of the game is putting your time into the thing that will get you what you want. And you do that. So that number goes up, your life gets better almost entirely. You know, there's little, mm -hmm. little oscillations. Maybe the stock market's up or down or whatever. But like you put your time in the categories that are really meaningful, important, building your life up, life goes better. So 
I just did that for quite a while. Eventually I started tracking everything and I, I just got such a kick out of it and I'd get so much gains, I'd do more of it and I'd get more gains. It was really enjoyable. I had a great time doing it. It was like, people were like, that sounds difficult. I'm like, no, no, no it was great. Um, it was great. But uh, yeah, I mean, just getting that number up. I think most people would be shocked at how little they put into whatever they would classify as the most important thing. Yeah. And if someone's life is stagnant, that's very, very often why if there's not any external circumstance, if they're not like recently in a car crash or an illness or some such, usually it's about allocating more of the time into the category that you wanted to go in usually gets you where you want to go. Yeah. You actually said something subtle in there that I want to highlight where by monitoring this, you started to get some more gains and you monitor again, you get more gains. And what I interpreted that as was you basically got into an iterative loop. Um, and I want to highlight this because, you know, we all hear the importance of uh, nonlinear growth or compounding, or, you know, you want to, you want to compound your money, your wealth, uh, but you also want to compound your time wherever possible. And I think the way to unlock that, you know, in the personal growth context, you know, get closer to the goals that, that you have is to involve some form of monitoring. Otherwise, you're not going to get this, this iteration. How can you iterate if you don't even know where you are? How can you reallocate your attention, your efforts, if you don't even know where it's going to begin with? Yeah, 100%. Firmly agree. And by the way, a big thing that I'll say is I think most people, if they start time tracking, a big mistake they make is early on, they try to focus on what they don't like doing and suppress it. Right. That comes later. Do that. You already spent 168 hours last week doing something. You were doing something. You, you allocate every single one of those hours, right? If you redeploy your time into higher value areas, it will naturally, naturally must subtract from other categories. Right. And so as long mm -hmm. as you're not subtracting from the other good activities in your life to do this, right. As long as you're trying to just keep it even, even, you know what I mean? Evenly pull, pulling from all the other time, but probably from the garbage time, the bad time will go down. But here's the thing, right? If somebody spends two or three hours on their most important thing of the day, you know, their PhD candidate, they really focus really hard on their research and they're writing their PhD and so on and so forth. That's better. In my opinion, that is much better in my opinion for them to do that. And then watch Netflix for the whole rest of the day or play video games for the whole rest of the day or otherwise screw off in a way that they're very unproud of at the end of the day. But you got three hours in on moving the ball forwards on the type of art you make, the type of business you're building, the type of research you're doing, your career, whatnot. Then being busy and running around for five or six or seven hours and feeling like, you know, I did my job on planet Earth. I was just busy and miserable all day. And then only spending five hours on Netflix or video games or whatever they might be doing. So suppress, suppress the bad stuff later. Early just get up the good number. It's also more motivating and more enjoyable. And then like whatever, you spend the rest of the time, however you spend your time. You start beating your benchmark for how much time you spend on what you cared about. Last week, you do it this week, you do it next week. You just like keep doing that. Like you're, it gets pretty good pretty fast. It's and then the bad time. Eventually, it's worth like building some suppressed protocols. I built all kinds of elaborate computer won't connect to certain website things and got mm -hmm. really clever about it and stuff. And like that's fun because you know back when Facebook was like a cool thing that like people went to addictively. I don't know if you remember this. It was like a while ago. Facebook was like really cool. If there's any very young listeners in the show, Facebook was like cool for a while. It was like cool people went on there and it was like cool. Like I, I don't I don't know. This is like very hard to believe, but it's true. Yeah. I'm not making this up. And you just type FAC in your browser and hit enter and it would auto. I still have the Facebook. muscle memory of doing that. You know, I've done FAC, that like thousands right? of times. Yeah. Yeah, so you could put on an app like the Mac app self-control, which you could block a selection of websites for a while. So you could do that to suppress Facebook. But here's the thing. If for whatever reason you got in some, you know, some creative uh, blocks and procrastination, some I'm scared to do the thing that I want to be doing thing, you get off Facebook, you wind up on YouTube. Okay, Y-O-U, enter, whatever, block YouTube, fine. Then you block YouTube and then you wind up, and like eventually you wind up on a little bit higher time, 
like I've certainly spent like hours on Wikipedia clicking through and like like going through the history of the Ottoman Empire or whatever. And that's better than Facebook in fairness, yeah. but it's yeah, still marginal, if you will, right? So yeah, the suppression comes later and, and, and stuff to cancel out the muscle memory of FAC enter or things to like remove. Sometimes I see like the most asinine thing trending on Twitter. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I just got to see what it is. Click. I, I don't know. They're like so smart. They're like smarter than me. I don't, I don't know how they do it. I know mm-hmm. I don't want to click it. I know it's going to be garbage, whatever it is. But I click it and I'm like, oh, my gosh, can you believe this? Oh, and that. Oh, no. Right. And, the, and it's like, I don't know. Okay, it got me. Right. So you can, you know, use browser extensions to like clear it up so you don't see what's trending. And you can use mutes and filters on Twitter. And like, man, like you really got to do some hygiene stuff. It's kind of like, you know, maybe one of the ways I think about it metaphorically is, Nobody sees any shame in if there's like loud construction or partying outside, like getting more insulated windows, putting in earplugs and yes, otherwise yes. not getting woken up repeatedly in the middle of the night. Or if you're on a late shift, you're like a security guard or something. So you got to sleep in when the sun's out, getting blackout curtains. Nobody sees that as shameful that the stimuli from light or noise disrupting your, your sleep or your day or whatever. Nobody sees that as shameful. People are like, I should just be strong enough not to click on the crazy freaking thing that is mm algorithmically optimized to get me to click on it and spend my attention on it and get get a reaction out of me man it's just like getting blackout curtains or earplugs it does make sense to fence that stuff away but even if you do you still gotta then go write your novel go work on your business make the sales call do the product development you're the back end engineer that doesn't like to do the front end you gotta make the front end man people need to be able to freaking use the code and like no like it looking really like ugly and janky like no people won't use it like you gotta learn enough of the stuff to make it usable and make it pretty enough that it's like up to standard. And you, so you got to do that. So I would start there for anyone that's doing time tracking, always start there with the, get the good time up. Yeah. Then later after some, some cycles of weeks, maybe even months of that, and then you can kind of push down the bad time, put some limits on it, suppress it a little bit to buy back more time. But that, that's not where I start. It's where a lot of people start. I think start by upping the good stuff is, is the way to go for eh, basically all the time for everybody. If you're going to start on that game. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, what comes to mind here is these are really compelling uh, tactics. Um, there's really good strategies out there. There's, you know, the templates that you guys offer at Ultra Working. There's no shortage of methods and procedures that will dramatically improve your life. Like I can attest to this. Like I've done versions of time tracking. I taught myself how to do GTD. I, I've learned all these productivity things. But I realized that after talking to a lot of people, the bigger issue is um, being in the game to begin with. So I really like this analogy of, of the game. You know, the podcast is called the metagame. And one of the things here is, uh, I think the hardest part for most people is to actually stay in the game or to come back to it when you get discouraged. So, you know, you might have a week or two where you do this stuff, or maybe you listen to this podcast, you feel like energized, and then you start tracking things. But inevitably, there's going to be discouragement. And then at some point, you're not, you're not playing anymore. And then maybe many months go by and then something bad happens and then that prompts you back into the game. So I'm curious, um, just from what it looks like with everything you've done with, with ultra working and uh, you've been in this for a long time, like you've written, you've written books on, uh, on how to work, on how to think about these aspects of your life, these practices. What is it that keeps you in the game? So there's a word that I like. I use the Latin word for it, the, the word religio. It's the Latin word for religion, but I always mm-hmm. use the Latin word religio um, because it's a, a modern phenomenon as far as I can tell that when you hear the word religion, you only think organized religion, right? right? So I borrowed this from a 
English physician in the 1600s or so. He wrote a book called Religio Medici, The Religion of a Doctor. And he was talking about his personal views on his faith. And he was a Christian, not of any particular denomination. He's like, hey, I read the Bible and here's, here's how I think about it. Um, I happen to believe there's a tautological argument um, in one of my favorite books, Carlyle, on heroes, hero worship, and the heroic in history. Incredible work. It's a it's a Victorian work. It's a little bit of a slog to get through. And some of Carlyle's works, he's Victorian. He's He was anti-capitalist, anti-democracy, had some very unpalatable modern ideas. So I'm not endorsing Carlyle. I love on heroes. I think it's a beautiful work. Histor historiography, the, the accuracy is sometimes wrong. It doesn't matter. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. book. You know, he had in there, you know, there's people follow systems of thought. And he said it's a tautology, basically, in modern language. It's a tautology that everyone has something about what they believe their relationship to the universe is. And I don't care. There's nothing. Nothing matters. Is your answer to that question for some people? And for other people, it's like, let me get as much enjoyment as possible. Some people are like, hey, I just want to be a good son or daughter to my parents. And then if I have my own children someday, I want to be a good father or mother. You know, other people are a member of a traditional organized religion. Um, and a lot of people have never clarified this. And Carly has some beautiful, beautiful writing on this. Um, so there's so so he goes on to make this argument tautologically that everybody has some relation to the universe um, and and how they relate to it and 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 why they think they're here. And like, there's no, it's like an accident. It doesn't matter. It's just random. I guess I'll have fun. Is that person's religio? Is their answer to that question? And a lot of people haven't clarified this, by the way. And this is yeah. like a. Maybe if somebody gets into philosophy, they get this out of there eventually, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, so, you know, I have mine and, you know, I sat and I thought about it a lot and like I have my answer to that question and like what I'm trying to do on the planet. Um, and, you know, some days you wake up and you're just, you know, you're really hyped and you're, you're having an awesome day. And those are uh, those are good days. You want to follow good practices on those to, uh, you know, execute well and get the most out of it and such. And then there are days that you wake up that are bad days. I had a COVID case uh, uh, some time ago and it was actually kind of nasty. It was like I had the vaccine and stuff, but it got kind of hairy. And I was like, man, like sometimes you just like you can't think real good. You're just like, bam, man, just like there's no willpower involved. I'm like, I was like a fog for a little while. Right. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, what do you do on those days? Well, you do what you can. Right. And yeah, for me, it just kind of comes back to the mission. It's not about, um, you know, like that is what it is. That's reality. These things happen or, you know, whatever. You get stuck in a, an airport when your flight gets canceled or delayed and you're just like stuck in the airport and you don't have Wi-Fi or something. You're just like, all right, let me make the most of it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, for people that have a sense of, you know, mission, duty, purpose that they're signed on um, to, that's something you come back to over and over and over again. If you genuinely believe in it and think it matters, thinks your life matters towards that, whether that's for your family or for your community or for your profession or the work you're doing matters. Um, you come back to that over and over and over again. And, you know, I think this is probably the most unfortunate thing about the, um, the, the, the severe decline of, of organized religion in society. That gave a ready-made answer mm -hmm. to a lot of people, whether you like it or don't like it, I happen to tremendously respect people of faith. Um, I think, I think it's great. And I think a lot of people think it's not great. And they can point to a lot of reasons why various faiths have some downsides. Sure. Of course. But you had a ready-made answer, which is like, I'm doing God's work. <laughs> Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And like, I'm having a bad day, but like God decided that I would have a bad day and this is a chance for me to prove myself in it. And if you don't have that, if you don't have that out of the box answer, like I would highly encourage you to go look for one, not you, 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 the listener, right? Go, go look for one because uh, you know who gets out of bed and like does their best is somebody who really, really, really believes 
that there's like a creator of the universe who loves you and wants you to be happy, but is going to judge you. And if you waste these gifts, yeah. <laughs> then you're going to burn for all of eternity. If not, you're going to paradise. That's very motivating, even when you're not motivated. And when it's like, ah, screw it. It's just a materialist world that we live in. Like, like whatever. It's just atoms and whatever. You know, when you're on that, it's like, eh, well, all right, like, I don't know. Nothing will happen if I don't get out of bed today, and that's perfectly fine. So, uh, I think people that have purpose, and that might be a, an uh, like an actualized purpose. A lot of people don't know actually what their thing is. There's some people that really just find a beauty in their work. They do craftsmanship. Mm. You think about traditional furniture makers. You know, some people like make this beautiful furniture in like traditional methods, and so it's like beautiful. I'm like that's why they live. I don't know. There's a famous sushi documentary guy. I haven't seen it, but everybody tells me I'd love it. And it's like my type of thing. You right? Would, yeah. You know, this guy just loves to make the sushi, right? And like that, that's probably that too. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, we talk about purpose and stuff, but these words get watered down and stuff and, you know, uh, uh, heaven help us if the word religio ever becomes common, it'll become useless again. It'll have a bunch of pop articles about it and then it'll be not helpful anymore. But I like that. And I think there's a, everybody believes there's some reason that they're here in the universe. And if you have some mission like thing that you're on and then that is very compelling, um, regardless of what your biochemical or mood levels that day, or if you've gotten the, uh, novel coronavirus exposure recently or, or or you're just having a bad day you know whatever people get the flu or, or there's loud noises outside and you sleep bad whatever that stuff happens to everybody and it keeps you going on the days that uh whatever one, one other thing that i'll say that i think uh I, I said this and this seems to be really meaningful to people surprisingly so i've said this to many mm. people and it's like surprised me how meaningful it was to them i'm more proud of myself and i find it more admirable to have an average day when i'm way below average than when i have a great day on a great day yeah. It's like easy to have a great day on a great day. You still got to like not screw it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? But when you're like, man, today sucks. You wake up with a pounding headache. Maybe you didn't drink enough water yesterday. You got to, you know, whatever, you're dehydrated. And you get up and you like do okay. You don't go backwards. You go forwards. I'm like, man, that was great. I had like, mm -hmm. I woke up in a D minus day and I put up C plus performance. That is just outstanding. And I don't know, most of the people I know that are successful, it's not that they don't have bad days. It's they put up a on a day that they're feeling an F when they wake up, they put in a C plus or B minus day. That's that's how you win the game, really, or parts of it, rather. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot you said in there. Um, first, just highlighting this last point uh, and connects to something we were talking about before we hit record. I think it's very important to celebrate your W's, you know, like know what's a win and then acknowledge it. And what you just shared has quite a lot of wisdom to it because most people wouldn't recognize that that's actually a W like having an average day when you're feeling like shit. And so they don't even give themselves points for it. And what happens is it's not reinforced. So neurochemically, they're less likely to do it again. You know, in fact, they might even punish themselves. It might be like, Oh, I had a C minus day or C plus day. And that's just that's like adding insult to injury. Some days it's all you can do and you better yeah. celebrate when you out. Cause that's an outperformance on that day. You know, it's like if an injured pro sports player comes and puts a credible performance in yeah. while injured for his team or her team. It's great. It's like you did what you could do. You give it everything you got and then whatever. And then after that, you know, inshallah, God willing, right? right. <laughs> you know, as the, as the Muslims say, right? So yeah, you, you do what you can and absolutely you celebrate that when you get the most out of yourself on a day. You won't be, it's a statistical fact that one third of your days will be below, below bottom third days. And it's a statistical right. fact that one third of your days will be top one third days. And it's, how you perform in the bottom third of days is very, very predictive of the quality of your life. That's when people go backwards and backslide. And the thing you were asking me about is yeah. they don't know how to keep on that note too. You mentioned I'm in the systems and stuff, which is true. You want to design your systems to survive your worst days and your worst. Exactly. Weeks. A lot of people build systems to maximize their throughput on their best days. Your best days kind of take care of themselves. You need to use them. Don't get me wrong, but people build these elaborate systems and protocols 
to squeeze every drop of juice, which I'm into on their good days. These systems become inoperable if you have a splitting headache or if yeah. you're a little bit low or some crap is going on. So you need your systems either have like safe fallback and rebuilding positions or otherwise have defense mechanisms and such for your bottom. I mean, you'll have a bottom 1% day 3.65 times per year. Like what's going to happen to you on that day? That's like right. a boring statistical fact. Do you know what I mean? So like if, you're, if your systems only survive the top 99% of your days, you're going to go on average a little less than 100 days before your systems break. Yes, this is a this is something I encounter a lot. So I, I do uh, productivity coaching, and I'm launching a course this winter specifically geared towards this because I notice that a lot of people they'll learn GTD or personal knowledge management or something like that, and it only works like a small percentage of the time because it's really just designed for like this idealized platonic form of their life. And then when they don't do that, they don't have anything to fall back on, and so a big thing that's come up in my practice is what is the minimum viable form of productivity? What's like the white belt? What's like the fundamentals that don't depend on all these tools and systems that you can literally do with like a post-it note, or you can just train your own body to do. So you always have it. And what I learned is that that stuff is not very sexy, right? Like it's much easier to talk about the latest tools to talk about like, you know, knowledge graph and obsidian or something like that, or, you know, the, how, how this like new approach is going to dramatically change your life. And so people skip to step three before they've even learned step one. And I, I don't think you can skip steps, basically. I don't think that's that's possible. We did. Um, so two things. The first one is when I was when I was looking at your writing, your sub stack, you had this one. I'm going to get it a little wrong, but I, uh, you could you could correct me. But mm -hmm. I found it really clever. It was like um, there's this like meme of like the, the, the really, really dumb, simple, simpleton guy. And there's this like super, super genius, like eight sigmas of intelligence is wearing like a monk's hood, like we'll say the, the, the bell curve meme. telekinesis or something, right? The, yeah. yeah, the bell curve meme, yeah. And uh, <laughs> the really, really dumb simpleton like uses Apple notes. And then as you go up the bell curve to the, the midwit who thinks they're smart, but is it? They're like, I have a connected system with APIs connecting all my knowledge graph and doing all this stuff. And then the like 130, 150 IQ person is using Apple notes. And I'm like, this Apple knows this makes me so there you happy. Go. I don't know which side of the curve I'm on, but uh, but I got a big kick out of that. Um, you know, we were doing. Um, we sat in, and we've been on a on a kick um, on a, on a team level. We're talking mostly about individual productivity, but we've been really thinking at Ultra Working. How do we? How does our internal team work together? How do we work as a team and 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 grow and do great work together? Um, and we've been on a big. I don't know, maybe like six, seven, eight months now. Operational excellence kick where we're like studying one thing and like getting it really, really like correct mm. and establishing as a correct systemic performance as a team. Um, and then, and then it like takes a while to do it like takes longer than, than, than most executives want to do or, or feel like they have time uh, available to do um, and, and patience to do with like trying to go as fast as you can, but like it might just take three weeks to install this if you're fast. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And, um, but I was looking at kind of the, the, the meta aspect of installing systems and what's needed. And, um, you, you know, there's the tool, obviously, of whatever you're going to install, you need to pick the right tool for the job. But when I was thinking about it, I feel like a lot of people skip the other aspects. Second thing I had is theory. People need to have mm -hmm. the theory of why they're using the tool. Right? So a lot of times people are like, let me get this cool tool and let me use it. And it's like, but what exactly will that do for you? Because most type of tools can produce different types of gains. Do you know what I mean? It can do different yeah. stuff. 
you know, like you think about a set of, of chef's knives, right? You could do a lot of stuff with chef's knives, you know, in the kitchen and cutting and whatnot. But it's kind of like, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to make like vegetables or you like, you know, do you want to get like one of those big, big knives to cut a big loaf of bread? Do, do you know what I mean? Without the lodge, give me some great knives. And it's like, okay, right? Like, but like, what exactly do you want to cut? Maybe you just need one knife that does the job in the kitchen for you, right? So what's the theory? And having everyone have the same theory on the team, but, but as an individual, people try out a tool, but they're not like, here's what I want. You know, there's movies or books or passages that give me a lot of joy. And then I'm like, I should reread them, but I don't. And then I, sometimes I randomly do. And like, I want to get those things and relive them and experience them more often or something. Like, like we could design something. If that's like something you genuinely wanted, you could design something to get that. But someone's like, I just should have this system. It's like, well, why? Right, mm -hmm. theory. And everyone on the team, if it's group, needs to know, like, are we having like really intense practices at practice? so that we work better as a team, so our movement is more coordinated, or are we getting up our fitness? Like, what is the point of this practice? Because, you know, heavy fatigue levels mean you sometimes can't practice the fine-tuned skill and coordination stuff as well. Like, what, what is the goal? If different people and someone's going all out, someone's going real slow, try to get the footwork and the steps down just right, like, you're, you're not practicing on the same page, right? So the, so the theory. Then there's what I would say the training and socialization. And this is where it's very hard in individual systems. Training is when someone's an expert, walks you through, here's here's how to use it. And socialization is when your peers use it with you and encourage you and prompt you and give you like a little bit of feedback yeah. within each other. Very difficult in individual performance to get training and socialization and stuff. And some people like like yourself, um, I think you mentioned uh, Tiago Ford, who's like a, a lovely guy. Um, he's, a, he's a great guy, he's a really smart guy and a really good guy. Um, is, is good and you can, get, you can get some kind of training there, but but the vast majority of people maybe, maybe won't, they're kind of bootstrapping it. Um, and then there's, I think there's an accountability function. And I think that's also one of the ways that you keep yourself from falling off during bad times. Um, you know, uh, the, the one thing you, you, on the show notes, you said, Hey, I, I might metaphorize you like for knowledge work. You're like an athlete. And I'm like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. I could I could roll with that. You said that when we were, we were starting, I'm like, I, I could roll with that. That's, that's flattering actually. Well, in terms of actual athletics, I've, I've been reasonably successful at anything I, I set my mind to and said, I'm going to do, and I'm going to get good at when I said, I'm going to get good at something. I'll just. Like if I'm actually doing it and meaning it and saying, I'm going to get good at this, I will put in the time, I'll read all the books on topic, I'll seek out people that are good at it, I'll practice, I'm okay with getting my ass kicked for a while and, and being embarrassed and going through the beginner's curve. I've just done this in a bunch of different stuff and like it works if you give it enough time and you're not uh, for some reason ill-adapted to the thing. But athletics was always a struggle for me because I blew out one of my knees and I blew out the mm. cartilage in my knee doing squats and I was running, I got plantar fasciitis and I blew out, I was actually, I trained through injuries and then get hurt more. Um, you know, I hurt one of my elbows. Like I just, my soft tissue doesn't play nice. Well, I you know what similar I did wind up sticking with? So I understand your pain. But do you know what I did wind up sticking with is, is I'm now on a multi-year yoga habit where I just mm. do my yoga pretty much faithfully twice a week because first off, I have an instructor. I have an instructor who's wonderful to work with. We do yoga one-on-one, -on -one, um, usually, usually through the, through Zoom actually. And you, you have to set it up. There's no great service to do it. Like you have to like find somebody that you like and get along well with and figure out to set up a, a, a thing between you and them. So it's not through any service. Um, but, uh, but then we could also work around injuries. And that's the beauty of yoga is, you know, if you're doing hardcore strength training and you like pop a disc in your back, that kind of jacks all the big lifts. You can kind of sort of do some lifts around it, maybe, but like, not really. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And yoga, you actually can really work around your injuries and, you know, like you could have a spine problem and you could just do little tiny stuff with your legs to work around it as well as kind of rehabilitate injuries. So the combination of an accountability function and an accountability function that would work when things were bad, 
was was very powerful. I think a lot of times people lack that in their personal systems. I think a lot of people also have this without realizing this. If they're in a good social group that they have like a brunch with or something, it's like a quasi accountability function, not an explicit one. And I think it's not just the tools, the tool, the theory, the training and socialization, and the accountability function. And for a team system, there's also like maintenance of the system and such, which systems are always going a little bit out of date. You got to have somebody that's committed to keeping an eye on it and tuning it up. But I think you, I, I really do think to, to give yourself the best odds of success of getting on some systemic thing, you really need all four tool without, and the tools are the flashy, cool thing that people like, right? Tool, but also theory, training and socialization and an accountability function. That combination I think works very, very nicely together. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So just to, to highlight some things there. Um, for me personally, I realized that if I'm not clear about the theory of a system and a tool, a week into it, I'll actually forget why I'm doing it because something about the tool itself has its own kind of like life of its own or whatever. Nothing is perfectly designed for your particular circumstance. And so knowing why you're doing it is, is essential and reviewing that as well. And the best example of this is if somebody gets a bunch of uh, KPIs and they don't really know why they have them, it's like, oh, we're just like measuring things, then you're not going to use it for decision making or you're, it might actually lead to wrong decision making if you're not clear on why you have it. Um, but yeah, the thing, the thing I really wanted to dig into here is this uh, accountability piece and I'll tie in a few things. So even the conversation before about religio, religion got this right, you know, religion, like Sunday service, right? You're, you're at church with a bunch of other Christians worshiping the same value structure. You know, you're, you're all worshiping God together and you're singing songs and you're hearing a sermon all aimed at towards the same common purpose. And there's something about that community element that is just deeply built into our our biology. And so those types of organizations, they they are responsible for a lot of uh, dramatic changes in people's lives. And, you know, you don't have to be an organized, you don't have to follow an organized religion. You can actually be deliberate about how you have accountability in your own life. And so something I've talked about before is this idea that I actually think everybody needs a gang and I use the word gang kind of provocatively, but your life is so, will be so much easier and better and more fun if you have three to five people that's like your, your crew that are all oriented around the same values. And when you're developing difficult practices, you do them together. And uh, I know you believe this um, in, in your own way, at least, because the whole ultra working methodology involves this kind of collective social accountability when people are doing work cycles. So I wonder um, if you can tell the listeners a little more about that and then maybe some of your personal experience with this uh, idea of a gang. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm happy to weigh in on both. Maybe the second point first, because it's very mm -hmm. fresh in the mind, gang, crew, crew um, is what I say. I think the biggest thing there, just to weigh in on that briefly, in your, your core crew, your inner circle, if you will, I think it's incredibly valuable. I think it's incredibly valuable to have people that on your core values are absolutely uncompromisingly on the same page about your core values, right? Mm -hmm. But, and you will not get this for free. Absolutely not. This won't happen randomly. As much as possible, you want people with radically different cognitive styles and professions. You want radically different. Like, lawyers are going to learn more from a great engineer or a great mm -hmm. pilot than they are like yes you'll have other lawyers as colleagues right and, and friends and you'll have been a lawyer that you really get along great with is somebody you can get along great with but a pilot 
or an engineer or programmer can just give you perspectives on your field. Like, oh, hey, you know, I've thought about law is kind of like programming, but with like a messy interpretation here and there or whatever. Or like, hmm, you know, the challenge you're dealing with with the stress here is kind of like when you're like flying and like bad weather happens, you know, and it's just like, it sometimes it just opens up. And when, when you actually look, and I think there's some, some good historical cases for this, oftentimes it's people that aren't from a field that make radical changes in the field. Yeah. You like Eli Goldratt, he was a physicist. And he, he absolutely revolutionized industrial engineering by going and looking at how industrial engineering is, is how factories are set up. It's the design mm. of how work moves through factories and, and people do jobs in factories, traditional factories, you know, making appliances, stoves, cars, stuff like that, right? And Goldratt went in like a physicist and modeled stuff using like physics, like, like you know, like, like let's look at the constituent pieces. And, and he was just like, some of this just doesn't make any sense. And like there were some ways about how they were calculating stuff that was was just false. The book The Goal by Eli Goldratt is a wonderful, wonderful business book. Sold millions of copies, which is it's rare that a book that sold millions of copies is also like a great book. Mm. Um, it's, it's wonderful. So I think that's something to really search out for and prize. And it can be, it won't necessarily happen organically. If you're an attorney, you might need to go to a conference on um, on people doing cool stuff in medicine that are just open to the general public. You're like, hey, I'm just into this, or I'm just like, you know, whatever. And then you look for people with shared values and enough overlap. And, and those can become some of your really best friends and advisors that can check your thinking. Because people that are cognitively very like you, maybe they're very fast processing, or maybe they're very deliberate processing, they're going to come up with different answers. If you're methodical and deliberate, you're in operations, you're make the plan or run the plan, then you'll be missing opportunities to just go fast, jump on things, kind of do reconnaissance and force, if you will, by just jumping in, see what happens, minimum viable move. And the people that are fast processors, they get an idea, they can like test it out really quickly, they can act on it, sometimes won't put the foundational pieces in place, they won't build mm. a little bit slowly when that's, you know, in one of those video games, like one of the real-time video games, there's people that build the base slowly and wait till they have the overwhelming force, the optimized economy. There's people that are like, all right, I got like two soldiers, let me send them out to go just make, make havoc on the other side, right? And like, be great if you knew both those styles a little yeah, bit. They're yeah. different, called for at different times. So that's my my quick thought on on the crew, and we could we could talk about that more. I think Aristotle and the Comachian Ethics did some wonderful writing about friendship. Yes. Um, might might be worth talking about, and and, um, and and you know he did some some really wonderful analysis. Still, just reads very very true. Human nature hasn't changed that much um, since then. So so Aristotle has some wonderful stuff on that. Um, as for yeah, as for for group setting stuff, I mean there's. There's an interesting thing. So, so one of the things that we do, which I think is, I think works pretty well for us, is we try to build technical interfaces that we learn all the best practices. We're hardcore R and D people. We read research papers. We talk to people that are at the tops of their field. We try to figure out what they're doing, and then we run like hardcore, crazy, crazy, crazy experiments. Like not like dangerous ones, but like tracking your time down the five minute block for multiple years mm -hmm. and stuff, right? And do a lot of stuff like that. And most of it doesn't work. I don't know. Like if I'm being generous to ourselves, to ourselves as to what we count as an experiment, like one out of six things works okay, and then some of those are winners, right? right. Um, and then we try to build the, really kind of the 80-20, if you will, interface or tool around that, that adheres to as many of the best practices, but is usable and you don't need to be like a freaking, you know, like, a, you know, biochemically optimizing ninja warrior or whatever, like, you know, whatever, like it just works out of the box really, really well. Um, and I think that's valuable. And yeah, we tie together like light social accountability. So at the work gym, we do live work cycles, right? So we have some sessions of four hours you show up there's a moderator they're hosting work cycles. other people working alongside you there's video camera on you get the work cycles interface where you plan your work through it like works pretty well we got some some software version you could do in a spreadsheet we also have a, a software version headquarters that you could do then you combine that with the video conferencing there's a moderator they're keeping time they're like hey two minutes warning okay hey that's time some interesting stuff happens on the breaks breaks are optional you can hang out and listen as the moderator does some stuff there's we have a speaker break from time to time where some of it's 
doing something interesting talks about their work every two hours we have one of those for 10 minutes not too long um and yeah uh adheres to best practices about like pacing yourself and work recalibrating tracking how you're doing over time very lightweight interface um i find the like you said minimum viable for systems i think you also want minimum viable social accountability you don't want to be completely yeah. reliant on other people in a small dose small 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 dose is really often that's that's it that's enough you know what i mean i uh our CTO at Ultraworking, Lee Knowlton, and I, we had a very fun month one month when um, we did a challenge. He wanted to get back into running. Um, and so he went and he said he's going to do a run, I think it was like run 52. He was going to run 52 miles that month. And I was doing much less intensity of running. He was a hardcore runner. He won the San Bernardino City Championship when he was a younger guy, he's a track captain um, and such like that. Um, I was doing some endurance training around that time. I said, hey, I'm going to join in. He announced he was going to do it. We do these little experiments. I said, I'm going to join. I'm going to do endurance training 52 hours this month. And just like, I just take a photo at the end of my endurance training session. Like, hey, I hit a bike this time or I put on a rucksack. I did a march or whatever. And just there's a chat channel. And Lee and I are just posting it each day. Just she's sharing his runs. And here's how my run went. I'm sharing my endurance training. Here's how my endurance training went. And yeah, it's just way better than doing it solo. I actually got injured mm. mid-month, by the way. I actually got a little injury. I blew my ankle out a little bit. Um, and you know what? I still finished my 52 hours. I had to work around it. I found alternative activities to do. Started doing laps in the pool because you could do that while you're injured because and like nothing was going to happen, you know, whatever. Lee's, you know, not going to be like, you know, there's no obligation for me to continue per se. Lee would have been very understanding. I got injured and like, who cares? Right. But like, hey, that's like like my colleague and my good friend. And like, I don't want to let him down. He's doing he's counting on me. And he got a big boost. It's like, oh, oh, man, Sebastian like blows out his ankle takes a couple days to sort it out and then gets in the freaking pool to, to figure it out and to keep moving, then I better, you know, I can't blow off my running and he would have gotten done anyways, but you know, that kind of light social accountability, you know, quote that I think is true, a uh, little expression I think is true. I think people are way more willing to let themselves down than let other people down. I think mm -hmm. that's hardwired into the mm -hmm. vast majority of humans. Maybe some, some sociopaths or psychopaths, that's not true. It's a very small percentage of the population. I think 90 something percent of people are far more willing, you know, you blow off the gym. Oh, it's slightly snowing. I guess I won't go to the gym. But like, you're gonna meet your buddy at the gym. You're gonna go to the freaking gym, even if it's like a nightmare to get there. You're not gonna just like yeah. leave your buddy waiting at the gym when they're gonna meet you out in front. You're gonna work out together. So yeah, light accountability goes a long, long, long way. Yeah, and uh, I used to think of this as a weakness, like a character flaw in myself. I noticed that the most disciplined periods of my life always involved some kind of accountability, and I thought, oh man, I should just be able to be self-disciplined, right? I should just be able to do this stuff on my own. And in the last few years, I realized, you know what, like, no, like I, it's actually better to, to do stuff with friends. Um, if I'm wired this way, I shouldn't fight it. I should just work with it. And so I got very deliberate about bringing people into my life who have the same standards of excellence and who wanted to do the same practices. Um, to make this like really concrete for people, you know, it's, I've, I've said this before and oftentimes people will say, well, how do I get started? Or what if you don't have any, you don't have a gang or you don't have the friends for it. And I think like the the very, very modest next action you could do if you're listening to this is think of somebody in your life that you have a reasonable degree of trust with, someone that you're comfortable being a little bit vulnerable with, and just text them, like you could do it right now, that you'd like some support with a goal. And then do it for two weeks. Just say like, hey, listen, I'm having difficulty going to the gym or difficulty meditating every, you know, every morning or something. I'd like you to hold me accountable to that and just make an agreement with that person and then invite them to do the same and support each other, but make it time bound, make it only two weeks and then see what happens. And I, I think that's like a really great way to taste this and get started. And who knows from there, you can kind of build up and maybe um, 
maybe you can add more people. Um, but you know, there's a lingering thing in my mind from, from a moment ago, which I want to go back to, which is when you mentioned religio, um, uh, or like a personal philosophy, right. Or, or somebody's operating system or, you know, something that's not organized religion, but your, your reason for being, or the Japanese word ikigai, like why, what, why do you wake up in the morning? Right. Um, I'm curious to the extent that you're comfortable, what are some elements of your ikigai or your reason for being? Well, I have one thing. <laughs> so you're one thinging me for our, our stack is yeah. going back and forth. But I got one thing about the people with the self-discipline thing. I, I maybe have like a partial answer for this that I think would be very helpful if somebody's like, I need to, I need to be disciplined. I need to, be, you know, like, right. And I used to be like this. So I'm, I'm very in empathy here. I'm not, I'm not, mm. you know, saying, Oh, people like you, I'm like, Hey, yo, I used to be like that. And, and one of the things that got over that was I never read the whole thing, but I read a summary of systems of survival by Jane Jacobs. Mm. Okay. She posited that there were um, so syndrome's a neutral term. It's often used in, in medicine to be like you have such and such bad syndrome. But syndrome's just like a collection of stuff that occurs together, right? So you could have like prosperity syndrome, you know, like whatever. Right. Like it's it's not how it's usually used, but syndrome's a neutral, neutral word. She talked about there's a, a difference between a guardian syndrome and a commercial syndrome, right? And like there's just different like systems of like honor and survival on the earth that people tend to follow. And, uh, you know, just to read an excerpt of it, guardians shun training, exert prowess, be obedient and disciplined, adhere to tradition, respect hierarchy, be loyal, take vengeance, and so on, right? Be mm. fatalistic, show fortitude, treasure honor. Commercial syndrome is shun force, compete, be efficient, be open to inventiveness and novelty, use initiative and enterprise, come to voluntary agreements, be industrious, be thrifty, be optimistic, etc. And I, I, I find virtues in both of these, right? I find virtues in both of these. I'm, I'm very much... Um, you know, I've done a lot of business in a, in a variety of different industries. I was in consulting before I worked with people in finance, um, did some interesting work in finance. Um, I'll, I don't think I'll lose any points by saying, man, I, I like warrior type people. I like people that are, are sound, that are respectful, that believe in honor. I believe in honor. Um, I think it's increasingly rare. I like people like that. And I think a lot of people that believe in honor and, and, and are like, I should be tough. I should be disciplined. I should be strong. Great. I mean, like, I'm, I'm with you 100%. I really tremendously admire samurai culture and, you know, the Spartans on your shield or, you know, with your shield or on it. And like, I, I think it's great. You know what I mean? Like, I think I think it's awesome. Like, that's 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 me. I'm, I'm the insofar as someone's like, you know, if you ask somebody, are you a warrior? More or less, they'll have their answer. And, you know, the, the people that answer yes to that question are also the people that are like, why am I on Twitter clicking the stupid stuff? I should just fight it with my sword and my spirit. Yo, uh, look, um, I, I think recognizing that that's one of the reasons that comes from and it's attached to a lot of other wonderful things, self-reliance, care for the other people around you, trying to set a standard and, and, and um, you know, trying to be somebody of, of honor um, and, and, and discipline and, and trying to be someone that's, that's a leader that other people can look up to, trying to have integrity, mm -hmm. right? Where your thoughts, words, and actions match and you're strong and such. I admire all that. And then at the end of the day, you want to win too for your team and your family and yourself. You want to win, right? And right. so if designing your environment, you know, if you're a freaking recovering alcoholic, I don't think you get extra points by having a stocked liquor cabinet in your house. I really don't think you do. I think that's just stupid. I think it's reckless. I'm not putting anyone down. I'm just saying like, if you're a recovering alcoholic, get the booze away from you and then don't go into the bar. And uh, you know, I, I think like if environment design is the way to get one's goals so that you're more 
useful and happy. You're more useful to other people and to yourself and happier. And you're more useful to your family and the people around you and your customers if you're in business or your employer if you have a job. And you're a better participant in the world around you and you're smarter and cooler and healthier. If it takes environment design, then do it. And if like getting over your pride that I just should be this, look, a lot of smartest people I know need to design away certain mm -hmm. behaviors that are addictive or get out of control. And also a lot of people that are really successful people are people because they're driven to do stuff. And, you know, drive can go into, you know, mastering a new technology or a new field of business or a craft. And like mastery could go into becoming like the freaking level 99 World of Warcraft guy with the the dragon axe or whatever. And if that's what you want to do with your life, fine. But if that's not what you want to do with your life, I mean, like, whatever. It's the same personality trait. You just need to find your alternative dragon axe thing. And that that it's helpful if you design your environment around yourself. You get good tools. You get good people around you. So I see absolutely nothing wrong with respecting causality and doing things that work empirically like a scientist and like mm -hmm. having a good crew around you, keeping you accountable and kicking your butt a little bit is helpful. And you do your right thing more often because you do. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. And I don't think you get bonus points for being harder and certainly you don't get bonus points for failing, you know, by being right. tough guy or tough girl that's lone wolfing it. You know, and I'm self-reliantly failing. It's like, just get get somebody to help. People want to help, especially if you're a good person. People want to help you. And if you're a good person that's young, that ain't figured it out yet and ain't got your people, you will. You're going to have to meet more people, unfortunately, than you think you're going to need to meet to find yeah. really good people. Like, it's just, it's like a sad thing. It's, once you get into like a nexus, once you have like three or four people that are great people in your life, then you're good. Then you just yeah. meet each other's friends and colleagues. You're, then you're good. And you, I haven't thought about this in years. I thought a lot about this in my early 20s. And I haven't had to think about this in years. Right. But yeah, um, as for me, what drives me? Um, yeah, a, a lot of things. You know, I sat down one day and, you know, I, I, I rarely talk about this. I rarely talk about this. I did once recently because I got asked. You know, it's, it's weird. I'm being asked about this more often in the very late pandemic era. Like normally someone doesn't ask, like, hey, what's your moral orientation towards the mm. world? You know, I, I'll bring up that I think it's important, but I'm being asked about it more often and people seem to care more often. I think people are like looking right now and I have some thoughts as to maybe why. But um but I'm, I'm getting asked more about it. I'm always hesitant to talk about it. It's kind of a, um, yeah, it's a little bit of a personal thing, but it also can sound uh, pretentious. I'm not trying to, but like you asked, so I'll tell you. This is fact check. I've got this written down in various documents is what I try to live by. One day I sat around and I'm like, you know, I don't know. Philosophy means love of wisdom. And I did that for a while and I read a bunch of philosophy stuff. And it was like, man, the yield on philosophy is like really bad for the first like five to seven years. And then it like yeah, takes yeah. a while to get to anything of value, right? I don't know. Maybe some people get like a really good professor or something I didn't. But uh, I really thought about it. And one day I was, month, I was like thinking like, what do I want to do with my life? You know, I don't know. Somebody, everybody probably thinks about this eventually, right? And um, it's before I'd read Carlisle. And um, so I didn't have that framework of it. I said, what do I want to do? And I really, really thought and thought and thought and thought and thought. And eventually I said, you know, I think there's some things are right and some things are wrong. And, you know, every now and then someone like thinks they're like cool kid by like, oh, there's no morality, dude. You just I'm like, really? So if you could get away with just punching someone in the back of the head for momentary enjoyment, you could just deck them and you're not going to get caught by the cops. And it, you would enjoy it. You wouldn't feel bad. You just do it and screw them. No, dude. I'm like, why? And they can't say it's wrong because they don't believe in morality. Right. But like. It's because wrong, right? Yeah, cool. Like, like we know this, right? Like, taking somebody that's been like really good to you and treating them really bad for no reason is like wrong. Like, we know mm. this, right? Uh, at least I believe it. Some people don't. I believe in morality. I believe some things are right and other things are wrong. So, if you believe anything's right and wrong, where I got into trouble is like I don't know what's right and wrong. You know, sometimes the the levels are flipped. Where like this looks like a nice thing to do, but actually it's harmful 
systemically, but like actually, like if we were to do it more in an organized way, then it'd be very helpful. It could be very confusing and then prioritizing the different things that matter. So I really, really thought about it. I'm like, you know, I strongly believe in right and wrong. And I don't know, like what's a better use of my time? Like saving the rainforests or like improving the technology levels in the world or like helping kids learn real well. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I, I learn real, really well. <laughs> I should be grammatically correct. I'll talk about learning. I didn't know. But I was pretty sure that there was right and wrong. And I'm like, you know, I really thought about it for a while. And I, I said to myself, you know, if a solar flare went off or an asteroid hit Earth and took out all life on Earth, maybe it gets a little heavy now. But if that happened, would it matter how much of the rainforest we'd preserve before the solar flare hit? Like everyone has their answer to that, but mine's no. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if all the life on Earth, everybody's dead, right? If that happens, does anything matter anymore that happened before then? And I kind of don't think so. Um, I think for morality to keep going, intelligent and moral life, people with intelligence and moral agency need to keep existing. I think all the morality, insofar as you don't believe in a traditional religion, the morality is in the, in the mind of intelligent species, right? Mm. Um, probably in other interpretations. Um, so I thought about that. I said, huh. So the precondition for everything else being right and wrong is the ongoing survival and existence of intelligent moral life. I said, okay, cool. I'm going to do what I can to add some percentage points to that. I don't think I'm going to make a tremendous difference. You know what I mean? I don't think I'm going to be like, whatever. Like, I don't think one person can make that much of a difference, but you work with good teams, you build a great organization, you add technologies. I think the ability for people to think a little more analytically, I think the ability for people to have more agency, I think the ability for people to be more cooperative. Um, I think the transition as the automation is coming for mm. human augmentation technologies to keep up. Um, and so for people to do more elevated forms of work as more routine stuff gets automated, I think that's very important. I think some serious, serious unrest is coming from that. I think it could be, could be rough and I think we could we become a major institution in the world, maybe ameliorate some of that. Um, yeah, that's my that's my number one. Um, is you know just increase the percentage points. I think Elon Musk is is winning that game um, yeah. by far with the the cars and the space travel and stuff like that. But yeah, I aspire to um, have as much of an impact and work with other people that that seem the same way and make a big difference on that. There's a whole long termist community that cares about mm -hmm. things like effective altruism, AI safety, X risk. The people I tremendously admire and uh, do my small part to to support people in those those groups in that part of the world are really just amazing people. And by the way, if there's really thoughtful, moral people, they're like looking for like a group that's still welcoming. It's not in the mainstream. It's like super hip yet. It doesn't have all the starting to get hip, which is good and bad. It's good that it's getting attention, but it's bad because like, you know, eventually it's like, you know, like social climbers want to join whatever a thing is because it's like the hip thing, unfortunately. Right. But you know, it's still pretty cool. Effective altruism are good people. So yeah, that's my big answer. Beyond that, um, an odd thing, and, and you can weigh in on this as well, is, you know, I haven't ruled out the possibility of, of some sort of, of afterlife. And, and you know, it's it's funny. I like you get actually heat in a lot of my social circles. So, I'm, you know, I'm friends with some like devout religious people, Christian, you know, heartland of America type people and abroad. And I'm also friends with some like communists, atheists, you know, whatever people either in, you know, Berkeley, California, and, you know, maybe in international development that are like really not, not having any of it. I try to get along with anyone that's a good person. When I think about it, I'm like, eh, I don't know. It's kind of weird that anything exists. People are like, whoa, the big mm -hmm. bang. I'm like, yeah, but why was there anything to go bang? I mean, come on, right? Like, the, you know? And I'm like, maybe there's something. And so I think treating life as there's a chance of that and training yourself to be the best version of yourself and a person that's generally admirable that if, if you know, you took a look at would be someone that other people would want to associate with and admire by the end of your life. And be like, you know, that's a decent person that's also kind of competent and learned some stuff and just got the most out of what you could do. 
I think that goes a long way. And then I have a couple of other secondary things. I like to be stylish. I like to like, when I make something, I like to make something a little more artistic. So we probably invest a little more in like aesthetics and art and stylishness than we otherwise would. I think stylish things are just, mm. I like nice aesthetics as like a distant third. And uh, I also like uh, Nietzsche's Amor Fati. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? You know, live in such a way that you would just re-accept your entire life over and over and over again. Um, I think that one's pretty good. And I think that's a good, I think that's a good uh, counterbalancing to the heavier, heavier missions. But that's me. And uh, I don't know if it's really, if it's really boring and heavy, we can edit it out and get on a board chip or no. But that's, I, I sat, and this is a multi-year clarification to get to that. And then to try to live those values as often as you can, as well as you can, and actualize that in terms of getting done what needs to get done for the mission. But yeah, that's how I think about it. That's what I'm trying to do. I, I really appreciate that. And I think it, it will be valuable for people to hear some of this stuff, like the the operating system, you know, the the thing that, like the engine that, that moves everything else forward in your life. And I kind of want to, I want to connect this to a big theme that was implicit in what you said. You kind of brushed up against it a couple of times. You know, you mentioned the solar flare or, you know, if uh, something's about to wipe out life on Earth. And you mentioned like the possibility of an afterlife. And I think really there's this clarifying uh, effect that meditating on death has. You know, if you really think about the fact that we're we don't know if there's an afterlife. And even if there is, it's going to be different from what this is probably. Right. So on some level, everything is precious because everything is finite. If you really get in touch with that, and people don't want to, cause obviously, because it's it's uncomfortable. If you really get in touch with that, it has a profoundly clarifying effect, and uh, I would also say enlivening effect. Paradoxically, like if if you want to feel more alive, then become intimately aware of your own death. And I I want to say this because I I find that wherever there's a cultural blind spot, you know, something that people don't really want to talk about, that's where you're going to find all the gold because it's become neglected. And I think death is a big cultural blind spot because death and birth, actually, it's all it's relegated to these brutalist institutions we call hospitals. You know, there's these ugly buildings and that's where all of modern life's births and deaths occur. And so we don't even witness it. But you can imagine in a more anthropological environment, we would be seeing, you know, people being born on a regular basis and people dying on a regular basis. And you have this connection with this life cycle of you know what it means to be human and you'd see also connect to the seasons and the environment and animals etc and i find that for me personally when i think about my death when i think about the death of my loved ones and you know unfortunately i've i've had uh, real experiences that have woken me up to this you know I've, I've i've lost a friend um all of a sudden what matters to me just rises to the surface and all the bullshit starts to disappear and then to tie this back in with what we were talking about in the beginning it becomes obvious to me that I want to use my time better. You know, it becomes, it becomes painful to me that I'm not using my time well. And then I have all the motivation I need to do some of this more concrete stuff that I know is going to improve my life, like tracking my time. So, um, yeah, I, I think this, uh, this is kind of underexplored. I, I think people, um, are sensitive to not being prescriptive about worldviews. I, I, you know, I, I understand that. Um, and everyone, Everyone's a little bit confused and fractionated in their perspectives these days. You know, you have all these different, um, different attitudes to what this whole thing is, this whole life is. Uh, but I think in general, if, if people share their particular perspective, I think it's, it's better for the whole. Yeah. And, you know, first off, sorry to, sorry to hear about your friend. Obviously that's, that's, uh, it's terrible when anyone, 
when anyone goes before for their time and they could have they could have lived it out and it's very interesting as well you know i was uh you know a couple of stories um actually i don't think i've i don't think i talked about either of them publicly one of them maybe the other one not for sure um two that are interesting you know i was the second to last person to see my grandmother alive and she was mm -hmm. she's a rock of a lady she's a tough lady she's an awesome lady so i remember that and that had an impact and an effect on me um so so losing someone um and and you know seeing like you know and she got a lot out of life she's an awesome lady you know she was really really cool um so so you know that causes you to reflect but that was like in her time do you know what i mean mm -hmm. it was like expected do you know what i mean she was she was in her late 80s um one thing that was very interesting for me so i've had a couple of near death or dangerous experiences and i don't encourage these right and one time was just random i was in uh so so when i was much younger um i you know it's kind of like, hey, let me travel the world, and, you know, save save some money working in the West and just, just kind of, you know, bummed around a little bit and just saw how people live in different places. And I was in a crosswalk um, in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. I got hit by like a teenager on a motorcycle on the wrong side of the street. I was even Damn. watching the way the traffic was oncoming. Man, my blood's all over the place. I'm in like a pool, like my, this so dusty in Phnom Penh. My, it's like dust all matting in the blood and stuff. I go to a clinic, I'm bleeding on the floor. It was like horrible. Well, actually... Not immediately. I was like kind of wrecked up for a little while after that. But a little while later after that, I, like I was like, I need to do something with my life that like matters. So, like, a few months later, it just hit me like like randomly, maybe like two months later. So there was that. That was a long time ago. It's kind of sometimes it's very hard to connect with the younger version of yourself, even a formative experience. You kind of like integrate the lessons and they just become who you are and you forget that you were very different than that. Like, you can kind of vaguely remember, but I'm trying to remember what I was pre-motorcycle crash. And it's like very, mm. very difficult. One that did happen recently, and and I, I share this one only because um, because you, you you've you've mentioned you know you, you've said a few times that you know maybe maybe a lot of your listeners are still looking for that crew and the people around them and and you know I remember when that was me um, I I do remember that it was like so long ago and probably like how you meet people is, is different back then the internet was kind of novel if you got an email from somebody like hey you want to like hop on a Skype call Skype was a thing back then like it was it was like cool and people just say yes they do it I'm sure the mechanics of meeting people in the pandemic and stuff I'm sure it's different now mm. I don't know I I like. I get introduced to more great people than I, I can spend time meeting. Unfortunately, there's so many amazing people in the world, and, and like so my, my my friends or like acquaintances that I really like, I don't get to spend as much time as I like. I vaguely remember that, but I had an insight the last time I got I got into trouble where it was like very very dangerous that I think might be might be useful. I don't I don't know if it'll transfer or not. So I went on my first solo mountaineering expedition. I don't know year year and a half ago, and I trained for it. I trained. I trained. I trained. Um, and I was training six days a week. I was usually doing two workouts a day, training to go. I would do uh, yoga strength training or swimming, usually twice, not always, but usually twice, four or five days. And I would do a long endurance training session on the sixth day and one, one day off for recovery and then again. So I was getting my flexibility up. I was getting my cardiovascular up. I was getting my strength up. And then I went on a solo mountaineering trip. It turned into how people get killed in the woods. It, it just mm. like, it, there's like a story. There's like a script of how people get killed in the woods. And that's it. Because I'm driving to the trail and six miles out, there's a gate trail, like, like road is closed. So I am minus six miles away from starting and I'm off course. I'm off course at hour zero. I missed the cutoff. I missed the cutoff where I'm supposed to turn wind up in the wrong place. I look at a map, it's like a mile, mile and a half to where I'm gonna go, I think I'm gonna bushwhack it. Unfortunately, and by the way, like stupid, stupid, stupid first trip. A, uh, 
uh, a guy I know who's a bit reckless uh, recommended this. I'm like, oh, it's cool. It's fine. Like, so stupid. No cell signal out there. Really isolated. And Nantahala National Force, super isolated. Uh, I didn't know how to read a map really well. And I've since shown maps to other people. I'm like, do you know what those squiggly lines are? Do you know what the squiggly lines are on a map? Altitude. Do you know? How does everybody know this except me? It's like very upsetting. Okay, okay, okay. Going a mile and a half to Chipotle on a paved road is different than going a mile and a half yes. up a freaking mountain. Yes. So by the time I realize my mistake, it's now more dangerous to go down than it was to go back up. Mm. And like at one point I got attacked by hornets. I took a bad fall and I got kind of roughed up. I lose one trekking pole when the hornets attack. My other one snaps at some point. And I'm like, I got photos and videos of this stuff, by the way. It's like some hair. I show people like, oh my gosh, like, did you survive? This is like your first solo. I'm like, yeah, that was my first solo mountaineering trip. But, uh, and I was never like injured or bleeding or anything, but I was way off course. It was going to be a three-day trip. People like like friends that knew I was there would only start like, I would only expect to come out of there. No cell signal for like four days later, right? I don't have any of the rescue gear. I don't have a satellite phone. I don't have nothing like that, right? So like if I fall and like snap my ankle, I'm on like very steep terrain. You know what I mean? Like they ain't gonna find me for a long time. Do you know yeah. what I mean? There's like some wildlife up there. It's 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 hairy. So I am dialed in where I'm like badly off course. I don't know where I am. I'm lost. I can't go back the way I came because I'd climbed enough, not realizing that. By the way, like trying to go a mile and a half where it's like as like almost as much up as over. It's like it takes a long freaking. It just takes a long time, no matter how fast you're going. It's like alpine. It's, forest like I've got photos and such right it's like it was like a videos of it it's like like at various times I needed to like use my broken one-third left of a tracking pole like a blunt machete to like hack my way through stuff right and at this point down is more dangerous than up right um so I'm just going and like the first night I get like partially up and then I'm like oh, man I finally eventually realized a mistake but it's like now I'm like kind of I'm like past the event horizon, like going up to the next trail is like safer than going back, like straight downhill through really nasty. You take a fall, you're done, right? Up is easier to not fall, right? Um, so it wasn't like climbing. It was like very steep hiking with very little climbing, right? Mm -hmm. um, hike a little bit down very carefully to a river to refill and, you know, clean and purify some water and, and, and go again the next day. Whatever. Long story really short. Um, eventually, I find a trail on the second day. I'm like, oh, gosh, a trail. Then the trail like just terminates in a swamp. It's only maintained by volunteers every few years. And I'm like, that was the only despair I felt the whole time. Mm -hmm. right? It was like, I'm, I'm like alone in this like swamp. I like throw my pack on the ground. It's like 7 p.m. at night. I don't know, millions of insects around. Like a lot. Like, I don't know, millions, maybe millions. Like so many. And I'm like, you know, but two insights came out of this. The first one, the first one that I learned, I learned this. I am now sure of this. I am certain of this deep in my bones. And everyone I've ran this by that's because, because, you know, I don't just go with intuition. I'm, I'm like into science. I look up science papers. I talk with very experienced athletes who have done some, some very dangerous stuff. I talk with scientists and neuroscientists. It's like our, our social circle, it's our crew a little bit, if you will. Um, apparently, there's some consensus that this might well be true. I think a lot of feeling bad for yourself is a social emotion. I didn't feel bad for myself very little. I spent bad for myself mm. 15 minutes when the trail disappeared a second time in the swamp. I was just like, okay, this is it. There is no one to rely on. There is no crying and I can't waste time. I cannot waste time sitting and feeling bad for myself. I just need to go and just go and 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 go. And if I was on some athletic thing, if I was on some like athletic training thing, cause I'm going like 12 hours a day, like up through like nasty, nasty, nasty terrain. Right. Um, and like, there's like swamps, but it's a freaking forest, man. And it's like a dangerous forest. It's like, I don't know. It's like, maybe there's more dangerous forests. I don't know. It felt really, really dangerous. Right. And I didn't feel bad for myself at all. Like maybe about like 30 seconds here and there. Uh, the hornets, the, the taking a fall after the hornet attack was peak, peak bad. 
I like brand to get away from it. it went down. It was like nasty, right? But there's that. Got over it. Once I realize I'm lost, I never felt bad for myself for more than like 30 seconds at a time if I like stubbed mm -hmm. my foot on something. Maybe the 15 minutes in the swamp when I got lost, I'm like, oh, I got to keep going. I got to find the one patch of dry ground in the swamp, camp there. I got so lucky. It rained that night, which kept the insects off me. It rained pretty heavy that night. It's like never been so happy to be like rainy, nasty camping with like a tarp over me. I didn't have a tent, right? I was like, like you know, I didn't have a tent. I was like, well, just camping on like a tarp and emergency blanket, a sleeping bag, right? Um, and, but the other thing, and this is where it might be useful to your listeners. You know what I realized up there? And this is profound. It was so profound. I don't know if I get across, but it was so profound. I'm like, one thing goes wrong. I slip bad, snap my ankle. I might not get found and get out. Right, mm -hmm. let alone if I get a puncture wound or something. And there's some steep falls, trails disappears, like rocks. It's like, it's like, it's heavy, right? And I'm like fully off the trail at the worst of it. But I said, I looked around and I said, I've never been alone my whole life. I'm never going to feel lonely again when I'm in the city. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? You think about, you're, you're the most lonely and isolated in a city where people are just unfriendly and unpleasant, or you're in a small town, you don't jive with the people there, whatever. Nevertheless, if you're in a car crash, a complete stranger will sometimes pull over and check if you're okay. And if you're sitting really having a terrible day in the park, you're crying your eyes out, you're just miserable, there's a chance a stranger will come by and try to cheer you up or look out for you. And like, you know, if your like house starts to burn down, complete strangers, firefighters will come in to try to drag you out and rescue you. And there are doctors that will treat you and save your life. And if you're having a medical emergency, somebody might try to help you. And right. a lot of people will care and at least call for help. And I'm like, and when I was really alone, like I didn't see anyone the whole time I was, I was up in the wilderness, right? Like for like four days, I saw people later. I, had a, I eventually had to hitchhike out because I went out a different way and came in. I had to hitchhike all the long way, circuit way back to, to the rental car I got, right? I said, man, I'm never going to feel alone ever again in the city. There are a lot of people that will help you that you could reach out to. And I feel like a lot of times when people are lonely, they're kind of like, they kind of miss the plot on that. There's a lot of people that if you just do a little bit of effort and reach out you know, and it, it might like take a hundred times of connecting with different people to meet somebody that's like your kind of person. It might might take a while. It's unfortunately it just takes longer than people want it to. And I get that. It's like annoying. But man, like when you're a, I'm like, I'm never feeling lonely ever again. That's it's it's in your head. It's in your head. You're surrounded by people, and many mm. of them are just really decent people that would be very happy to help. Like we're like a decent species. We got all kinds of flaws and problems and stuff, but like people will help you. Um and, and especially if you can connect with them and help them back to get a reciprocity and such. Yeah, I don't know. I'm never feeling alone ever, ever, ever again. And that was a man, I'm alone and could die up here <laughs> realization. I've, I don't know. I felt just much happier in civilization since then. Once I got back, I don't know, hard to hard to put into words, maybe what it was yeah. like up there, but a bit of a realization up there. Well, I'm glad you made it back. And uh, just to kind of yeah, me too. some of the insights there, self-pity is a social phenomena or a social emotion. And you're never really alone. And just to make this last one more practical, um, this is something I've learned as well. That you're, you're not alone, but you just have to go through the discomfort of making the first move. You know, like if you're in a city and you, let's say you're in an elevator and you, you don't want to just be like sitting around in the elevator because there's no service anyways, you can't look at your phone. You can talk to people in the elevator and sometimes people actually want to talk to you, but they, they don't know how to make the first move. So as long as you take the responsibility for that, you, like in a city, you're just surrounded by potential friends all the time, which is a really beautiful thing. Um, but yeah, I, uh, you know, we're coming up on our time here and I just want to like leave it to you for the last word. Um, 
after what we've talked about today and maybe kind of like the the implicit themes underneath all this of you know taking taking life seriously or recognizing the preciousness of your time um, what's what's one thing you'd like to leave the listeners with you know we, we covered a lot of wide-ranging ground from you know kind of the, the the landscape people are up against and uh, you know some ways you can navigate that do experiments connect with more people assemble a crew maybe tap in and clarify your values and things of that nature right and you know i've never regretted I've never ever regretted saying, let me take something that's an expression of what I think is right and what's valuable and what's important and say, you know what, like you said, two weeks, 30 days, let me go after it for a little while. Let me be very disciplined and commit to that. Let me make that the mission and just give it everything I got on that, whether that be meeting some people, whether that be just spending a little bit of time each day, uh, you know, on, on, on studying some, some great works of literature or art, trying to get to understand the craftsmanship of your field or whatever it might be at the current moment, you know, uh, you know, you, you cover with your guests a lot of interesting and different ground, you know, different from like mainstream, like pop nonsense, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. That's like blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and probably a lot of people that are tuning in are, uh, you know, thinking type people, you know, reflective type people that want to get the most. And like, you know, I think we can make things, as practical and accessible to people as possible. I think you and I both try to do that. And then when we talk, we like get philosophical, like, hey, you know, birth and death is sequestered away <laughs> for the rest of society. I'm like, you know, I thought about this. I think loneliness is like a, uh, it's, even when you're in a city in your own room, it's like a social emotion that you don't feel if you're on your own in a desperate circumstance, you know, like we will get out there, right? Because, you know, it's, it's rare to meet somebody else that, that's into and thinks about these things. And so it's kind of fun and, and we do that. Um, but, you know, in terms of the grander arcs of life, you know, you don't wait around for the epiphanies. You know, you don't wait around mm -hmm. for the insights. You know, I was just like getting all my life and I do this type of athletic training or that type of adventure. Or I go travel to this place. I try out this thing. I try out yoga. Yoga was a screw it. I'm going to try it out. And I volunteered mm -hmm. at the yoga festival. That's how I got into yoga. It was like a screw it. I want three days of going and moving some boxes and crates around. It was great, by the way, as a knowledge worker, as a CEO, mm -hmm. just being like, somebody else telling me what to do and I just move boxes around. It was like the most wonderful experience. It was like, this is great. I'm like doing a good job and contributing, like pushing this stuff around and setting up stages, taking them down. It was like so enjoyable. And then I also got to do a couple of yoga classes for free as a volunteer and I, I got into yoga and I, I fell in love with it. But I wasn't like looking for an epiphany or waiting for one. I was just like, ah, screw it, I'm a volunteer at this yoga festival. Also met some amazing people there, great people, the people who volunteered at the yoga festival, right? Like awesome people, right? So, you know, I feel like you get the philosophical insights and the deeper insights when you're doing things or the mm -hmm. rate of it is higher. So you don't wait around for those. It's good to search for those. It's good to listen uh, to, to, to people that, that put out a great podcast like yours and get some wonderful thinkers on there. I like your show. I'm glad this exists. And I'm, I'm feel very privileged that I got to be on here. You've had some really wonderful thinkers on here. Um, but then it's like, okay, how do we go out and, and actualize that and get on with it? And a lot of times the epiphanies come when you're when you're in action, you're trying things and it, it aggregates and adds up over time. So that's that would be my thought is keep learning, keep searching for good answers and then keep doing things. Don't wait for them to get going if that's if that's what some people are doing, you know, 
get get moving. Get moving and the answers come faster. Beautiful. Sebastian, thanks so much for this conversation today. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Daniel.